Hey Shakes Pals, welcome back to Protest Too Much. I'm your host, Stephanie Craniola, and I'm so excited and exhausted to be coming off of Dragon Con Weekend. It was a great virtual weekend of learning a lot about all aspects of digital media, and I even got to do a very silly Shakespeare panel with Mike from our first week's episode. You can find all the weekend's content at twitch.tv slash DC Digital Media. A major congratulations to Link Millard for winning last week's debate, proving Hamlet to be the best villain in all of Shakespeare, a surprising win against seven-year-old Mamilius. This week, we are focusing on best leaders with Meg Tyler as our guest. Make sure to follow us at facebook.com slash protest too much podcast and Twitter at underscore too much pod to vote for this week's winner. And remember to please rate, review, subscribe, and share. Welcome to Protest Too Much, a Shakespeare showdown podcast where a guest and I go head to head each week and you get to decide who wins. Okay, so this week we are arguing for Shakespeare's best king, and I have with me Meg Tyler. She is a professor and performer, and we are so happy to have you here today. Welcome, Meg. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm so happy to be here and to see you. Yes, yeah, it's been a long time. Uh, so tell me a little bit about yourself. So I'm a professor at Boston University, and I've been there for a long, long time, you know, on and off for 30 years. Wow. Um, I teach in the humanities division, and I, I got my PhD in British, Irish, and American poetry. 20th century poetry. Um, but I've really studied the kind of arc of lyric poetry from the sixth century BCE to the present, which of course includes a lot of Shakespeare. Right. Particularly the sonnets. And, and right now I'm teaching ethics, but, but I love Shakespeare and I always have. And, um, you know, over the years I've tried to teach it every year, every semester, you know, either a play or some poems. And I've been an avid theater goer, and I've um, I've gone to the Globe a bunch of times, and to Stratford when I was even younger than you, you young <laughs> lassie. I was in Stratford, you know, all day long watching the three Henry plays, oh, back what to a back. Day. I saw Jeremy Irons in <sighs> A Winter Tale, and I saw Dustin Hoffman in The Merchant of Venice. You know, that's how old I am. Um, <laughs> But, you know, it's just been thrilling to me because it, it keeps me alert um, in terms of my language, my thinking, my very being, because I cannot find a line in Shakespeare that does not speak to whatever predicament we find ourselves in. Sure. Yeah. And um, so I, I'm thrilled about this. Um, you know, let me confess that I, I'm not a scholar of Shakespeare. I am a scholar That's all right. <laughs> But I love it. And, and I do performances and I'm doing something right now with the Hopkinton Center for the Arts. We're doing scenes from Shakespeare and I'm doing my all time favorite scene, which from is Henry V with Catherine and Alice speaking <sighs> French. It yes. is the best. It is. Yes. That's right. La main elle est appelée de Inde. So, <laughs> Bilbo and oh. the town. So we're having a great time. 
That's awesome. Well, have fun with that. Good luck with that. Um, and we're so excited to have you here. So we are going to dive into it. Meg, who do you think is the best king in all of Shakespeare? Now, I thought carefully about this over the past week. And I had to think about this word best, of course, and it being a superlative. Um, so when I say this person is the best king, I don't necessarily mean he is best at kingly duties, sure. um, but really is the fullest, the most comprehensive character um, that I've come across in all of Shakespeare. And then I love to think about and talk about and his kingliness, um, his reign, which was crooked and broken. Um, but I chose, of course, King Lear. Yeah. Oh, man. I had to. So who do I think is the best king in all of Shakespeare? Well, it's not a king. Okay. But it's a leader. Okay. And I chose this because I was actually thinking about them as kind of companion pieces to see how Shakespeare's own thinking about leadership evolved and his own thinking about the complexity of the human mind evolved. So I'm sorry I gave you Titus Andronicus. Oh, never, never yeah. be sorry for giving me anything having to do with Titus Andronicus because... Oh boy, I could talk for years. Um, good, good. But best leader? Huh. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. So you are you are defending Lear as best king, and I am defending Titus as best king. I am excited. Take it away. So one reason why I chose Lear, the person and the play, um, is because what it teaches us about politics or about the hierarchies involved in leadership is that they very much resemble familial roles. Sure. Um, and our family dynamics as we play them out every day in our lives. You know, I think about the back and forth between Lear and his daughters, and that's something each of us recognizes because each of us, when we were children, had to use some form of flattery to survive. Mm -hmm. um, we had to bolster the parental ego and perhaps we weren't doing this consciously, um, but we did it because we knew that there would be smoother sailing if our parents felt better about themselves. Um, at the same time, the leader, the king, the king of the family or the king of the country has a certain ego um, that is, you know, interestingly sensitive. And it made me think not just about the family as we experience even in America today, but also about ancient Greek drama, because Titus takes us back to Seneca, ancient Roman drama. And I think Lear takes us back to Sophocles and takes us back to the predicament of, say, King Creon. Yeah. And Ismene and Antigone, and these really volatile relationships between uncles and parents and kids. And I think in all of these family and royal dramas, there's a real tension between the young and the old. And the young characters think, I know so much better than these old dotards. 
Um, and I think it's the same in Titus Andronicus, too. Of course, I'm not even answering your question. I'm just <laughs> starting to follow my train of thought. But No, I love it. Keep right. going. <laughs> you know, because I, I you know, I, I love Lear. I love his petulance at the beginning. Because you know what? Leaders are not perfect, and we can't expect them to be. Therein lies the bulk of our disappointment when we expect them to be superhuman. But you know, I remember once a professor told me that when you read John Milton's Paradise Lost, you read it because the most interesting character is Satan. Yes. It's not any of the angels. It's not Adam or Eve. It is Satan. He's round and flawed. And I think this is why I like Lear. And I'm also interested in Titus because mm -hmm. they are flawed characters and getting older doesn't necessarily mean getting wiser. You know, as the fool says to Lear, um, usually wisdom accompanies age. I'm not quoting him directly, which I probably should, <laughs> um, but it, it doesn't in Lear's case because he becomes petulant and bitter and perhaps mad in the process. Perhaps he's feigning madness at the beginning mm. in the same way that Titus feigns madness. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, as Aristotle said, habits become character. So if you spend your time being nice to other people, you will become a nice person if that's what you actually do every day, day in, day out. But if you become nasty and snide and you become a thief and you repeat that behavior, you're likely to, to become darker yourself. Um, and I see that in the case of both of these characters. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, that's so good. Um, so I, this is, this is a true gift because I really love, I think Titus is one of the best plays that Shakespeare wrote. And I think there's so much about it that I could pick apart for, like I said, years. Right. Um, but I think in terms of leadership, um, there are two things that stand out to me about Titus himself. And the first is that he refuses to be the emperor. He refuses to take that title that the crowd is heaping onto him. They, they choose Titus. So he is chosen of the people, but he can recognize in himself enough that he's not fit for that. He is a general. Right. Um, and he, he knows that about himself. And I think one of the things about a great leader is that he is able to, to recognize that and accept it and know that that humility um, and self-recognition is something that I don't think we see in a lot of leaders who have that divine path um, to the throne. So, mm -hmm. That's first. Um, second of all, uh, he has, his sons are far greater than he is. And mm -hmm. I think that's another quality of an excellent leader is that he has instilled these values in his sons. So even when he's not showing the best side of himself, uh, when he sacrifices Tamara's son, I think that's something that uh, is... A political decision, definitely, but not necessarily like a good or kind or forgiving person act. Um, so when he starts to do these things uh, and he slips into that villainous role, which I put in air quotes, and I know that we're on a podcast so you can't see my air quotes. <laughs> um, but I think there are definitely things that Titus does that we can all agree are not great. But his sons are there to pick up the pieces 
and it's uh one of his what does he have like 60 sons uh he can be yeah <laughs> he can be his own king because his family is big enough to be a kingdom um but is it lucius is his oldest son that takes over at the end that's right okay we see great leadership in lucius so for Titus to have instilled that in his son shows that he has the qualities of a great leader um, to mold his son into that, which I think Lear is decidedly not as successful at if we look at Reagan and Goneril. That's right. That's right. You know, I, I think you're so spot on that some of the characteristics of Titus have literally bled into his children mm -hmm. on the cellular level. Yes. Um, you know, at the same time, Titus has embraced this stoic attitude throughout because he was trained as a soldier, mm -hmm. which Lear wasn't. You know, I think Lear was given the scepter, but never had the experience of watching the sacrifice of large numbers of men sure. or women or children for that matter. And so his ego is of a different ilk. Um, but I think the relationship between those fathers and their children is just fascinating. I, I love that one point in the first act when Lear says, you know, I hope that when you breed and you have children, you know, they come back and they spite you in the way you have done to me. Mm -hmm. um, but clearly it's the, the selfish, the narcissistic parts of himself that they've learned from. Yes. You know, and luckily Cordelia, the youngest child, <laughs> did not suffer as much as the older children. You know, I think of my own family. I feel like my sister absorbed all of that insanity a little bit more than I did. <laughs> Got my fair share. But, um, but, but language, can we just talk about the language? Please. What Lear says, how he speaks, I am so... Uh, not charmed by it, but it gives me so much food for thought in a way that Titus doesn't because Titus isn't a poetic thinker. Right. He's a general. He's not a thinker really at all. He is, a, he is action motivated where Lear is far more thought based. That's right. And I think um, in terms of best speech, kingly speech, it's Lear. You know, even in Act One, embedded in his various statements, you have the beginning of this buildup of repetition um, of, you know, repeating like the same word in one line here, H-E-A-R, here, 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 you know, which then catapults us to the end of the play where you have never, 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 right? That powerful pentameter. Um, Even that nothing will come of nothing like that. Like yeah. I got chills just like, ugh. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so there's something so beautiful inherent in his speech or if not necessarily beautiful, very powerful and moving and thought provoking. And it, it's always checked in my mind by that one thing Cordelia says at the beginning when she says, I am sure my love is more ponderous than my tongue. And it makes me think how readily we can be seduced by people's speech. Um, and we might see or believe more about them than we should. And that's my failing. There's such power in language. Yeah. yeah. And that's 
in terms of of in front of crowds at least that is definitely something that titus does not have at all mm-hmm. um but like i think when you when you separate character speech from the lines of shakespeare i think like you have to make that separation because his whole uh, I will grind their bones to dust and with their, like his whole Chiron and Demetrius like speech. I know that that is Shakespeare and not necessarily the poetic nature of Titus, but there's still there's so much power. I think in terms of power and action, Titus is he's willing to cut his hand off. He's willing to sacrifice his daughter. Choices aside, whether that whether you as an audience think that's justified or no, his decisions are made with 100% commitment. Like he decides something, follows through and does it. And whether that is bad for all of his kids besides the one. Um, But he is is fully committed to uh, following through on what he decides and the power in his language, even though there's less beauty in it, I think is, is absolutely remarkable. Right, right. And I think you've totally persuaded me, Stephanie. I mean, Titus is in actuality a better leader. Um, I think Lear is a more complex character. Yes. And so I think I'm drawn more, which is a failing of my own, to complex characters who can speak seductively (laughs) rather than to good, honorable leadership, right? You say good and honorable, and I'm not 100% sure Titus necessarily fits well, that. Well, he but tries, doesn't he? That's why he kills Tamara's son. He said, this is fair. Yes. So many of my sons died in combat. It would not be fair if I were to let yours off, right? Yep. But I do think that when you talk about learning, I think that Lear does learn. He is, uh, there's something in him that is awoken that, uh, again, I just have I have goosebumps thinking about both of these characters because everything he goes through, everything Lear goes through, and then to have it taken away from him just just too late for him to finally reconcile with those thoughts and with those decisions that he had made earlier is like... That's right. That's right. And that's what happens to King Creon in Antigone. Mm-hmm. He has to experience the loss of his wife, the loss of his son, the loss of his niece, his two nephews. Mm-hmm. Finally, in that last moment of the play, to gain just this kind of minimal amount of insight. Yeah. And, you know, once Lear gains it, it's too late. But, you know, in some ways, this is what it's like to be a human being. We, we f*** up constantly. And... That's pretty much what we do. I, I, I had a friend who once said, you know, human beings are either always blindly moving forward or woefully looking back. Oh. And I thought that pretty much sums up where we are. You know, yeah. arriving at a place of wisdom, I don't think so. You know, we're always scrambling. We're always struggling not to drown, not to humiliate ourselves. I think the grace of getting older is you worry less about public humiliation. (laughs) And I think Lear does that too. That is one of his redeeming factors. He will let himself be seen as he is. Mm -hmm. This cranky, cantankerous, nasty, old, deluded man who has screwed up. He has lost the opportunity for that sweet love with his youngest daughter. Mm -hmm by spurning her and turning against her. 
and he he turns for it when it's too late yeah and um, i think that's reflected in titus as well because yes. his his choices for her he, when he chooses saturninus for lavinia and then uh that all goes haywire he basically casts her off into this place where she is destined to uh to tragedy and he comes around to this love for her at the end when again it is too late uh in his mind at least for her to be redeemed or for her to have any sort of future and there's just so much sadness in that loss but i have a question for you yeah. so this is a part of the text that always troubles me and it troubles my students when Titus finally kills his daughter, you know, should we perceive it mostly? And of course, I, I'm not thinking in binary ways. It's not good or bad. It's mm -hmm. always good. But when he kills his daughter, is it an act of, of mercy and love more than it is an act of just trying not to see this maimed, wounded child, which causes him such internal pain? So one of the things that I love about that scene so much is that he um, is the speech he gives right before it. So was it well done of rash Virginius to slay his daughter with his own right hand because she was enforced, stained and deflowered? And he gets an overwhelming yes from the table. Right. And when he says, uh, die Lavinia and with thy shame, uh, die Lavinia and thy shame with thee and with thy shame, thy father's sorrow die. I think that turns it back around to that sorrow rather than the shame. And since we end with sorrow rather than shame, I would like to think that it's more mercy driven than uh, selfish. Right, driven. right, right. But that's, that's me wanting I'm, that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like I want that of him because, yes. you know, it, as monstrous as some of his actions are, you know, killing his son pretty much off at the beginning of the play, mm -hmm. I think. Um, there is that stoic will which remains consistent to try to do the right thing for the people because that is his commission task. Yeah. To help the people to do the right thing and not just to serve himself. Um, so I like to think of it as an act of mercy and not just to relieve his own pain. I, I do too. And I think that even just rereading it over now, I do think that um, ending again ending with sorrow rather than reflecting it back on himself is a important distinction to make and again i'm we can read into this however we want and that's one of the beautiful things about shakespeare is that we can take these lines out of context or relatively in context and make them what we want them to be right and and let's just now that we've heard one of the, those final speeches of titus um well not final but close to the end mm -hmm. Um, I just want to read this last bit of Lear and to listen to how Shakespeare's language has evolved, how he's relying so much more in this later work upon um, pauses and ellipses and truncated sentences. So, you know, you don't have a lot of polysyllabic words expanding the line that move quite quickly because when you have polysyllabic language, it moves fast you know, the flatulent, pusillanimous, blah, blah, blah. Right. Whereas the monosyllabic language, stop, shut up. Yeah. <laughs> it's much more forceful, right? Yeah. You 
can't spit it out as quickly. So here's Lear, and when he refers to fool, he's referring to Cordelia. And my poor fool is hanged. No, no, no life. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life? And thou no breath at all. Thou'lt come no more. Never, 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 never. Pray you, undo this button. Thank you, sir. Do you see this? Look on her. Look. Her lips. Look there. Look there. And then he dies. And I swear my whole body is yes. split to 47,000 pieces. I'm sweaty. <laughs> of the power of those lines. Mm -hmm. And when you look at the, at the language, the, the diction, no, 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 never, 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 no more. Thank you. Look, look here. You know, these are words that everybody can understand. People today as well as back when. Yeah. Um, and the way that grief often undoes our capacity to speak with sheer fluency. And we cannot rely as much upon, you know, words from romance languages as we can when we're in grief you know we return to these monosyllabic anglo-saxon words no no look look there here it is absolute genius yeah isn't it yeah it uh it's devastating devastating you know coleridge once said that the reason why poets use repetition is because they cannot discharge the emotion that they're feeling in one utterance. Huh. So they repeat it. And I think of that every time I read this passage by Lear. And I think back to what Cordelia said at the very beginning, I am sure my love is more ponderous than my tongue. Because at the end, Lear realizes the constriction and the limitations of language. And it's actually the force of repetition which carries the potency of this passage, not so much the language itself. Right. And, you know, because that touches on something primal in us. If you think about it, our very first sound that we hear ever is the maternal heartbeat. That's the sound that is the foundation of our lives. And that is also iambic. Yep. And so he's returning us to that very primitive experience of hearing a repeated sound. And what could be more powerful to the babe than to hear the repetition of the mother's voice while in the body or once outside the body in the mother's crooning lullabies? You know, this is the, the, the majesty of Shakespeare, being able to tap into all of these visceral levels of our being you know, to discuss grief, which to me, he seems like he's talking about it in a new way every time. Yes. Yeah. So listeners, we're going to leave it to you <laughs> on that note. Oh my gosh. Um, who do you think is the best, the best king, the best leader in Shakespeare? Is it Titus or is it Lear? And I think that uh, being able to examine them as humans, as round 
and and developed humans as well as leaders in their family structure or in their communities like is such a fun thank you so much meg for being here it is uh this was really great thank you this <laughs> is like a, a party i haven't been to in six months that's what this was oh it's so it's good so good and i'm sorry that i totally dived away from best leader i mean i think that that humanity goes into being a leader and so i think that all of those things are really uh, representative of those two characters as leaders and i i loved it and listeners you guys can vote for who you think wins on facebook at facebook.com slash protest too much podcast or on twitter at underscore too much pod um and thank you so much again meg for being here and for doing this and we will see you all next week thank you stephanie thank you